It's time to travel with Anita. From across town to around the world, she covers it all. Spanning the globe for more than four decades, Anita has been to over 100 countries and territories and is the host of the Lowell Thomas Bronze award-winning podcast, Quarter Miles Travel. From low transportation fares to travel insurance concerns, safety to savings, Anita gets you there and back with a smile along the way. Now, here's the host of Travel with Anita, Anita Thomas. Hello, 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 and welcome aboard Travel with Anita and Friends. Now, I'm out traveling again, and I'm ready to get you out on the road, too. So there are a lot of great destinations that are close by, and they're perfect for weekend getaways, family trips, girlfriends, or even guy trips, too. And what about solo trips? By the way, solo travel, if you didn't know this, is becoming more and more the norm for many people. And a close-by destination is a great way to try your first solo trip if you have not done that before because it's close by, and if you're not feeling too good about it, I guess you can always head back home. But solo travel is a great way to do it, and somewhere close by is a good way. Now, today I have three great destinations that are not far away, and they're also filled with a lot of fun things to do, to see, and a lot of yummy things to eat. So you know I always can't leave that one out. I have to put the, the food part in. So first I'm going to head over to Memphis because after that I will go over to Beach Mountain, North Carolina, and then we'll wrap up the show with me staying in North Carolina with a trip over to the Brunswick Islands. Now I was recently in Memphis, and I toured uh, for the Black Restaurant Week, so I did a lot of eating. And I can tell you that I was ready to try the local cuisine. I also visited some museums, historic sites around the city. And this trip could easily be among those trips when you've heard me refer to as theme trips. It could be one of those type trips as well because there's so much history there in Memphis. There's a large amount of civil rights and African-American history in the city. And this trip is perfect for that. But there's also a lot of music history there as well. Now, Memphis is located along the Mississippi River, and you'll hear the name come up all the time. When you hear Memphis, you'll also hear Bill Street. And that is a name that is so connected with Memphis that when you hear Bill Street, you automatically think of Memphis. And Memphis, you probably will automatically think of Bill Street as well. Now, a Condé Nast traveler named Memphis is one of the 23 best places to go in 2023. Now, I agree with him on that one. I toured the city with a company called A Tour of Possibilities. Don't you love that name? And our guide took us to several historic sites around the city, sites that document the Underground Railroad, the location of Dr. King's famous last speech. I've been to the mountaintop, which he delivered on April 3rd in 1968. That was the day before he was assassinated, right there in Memphis at the Lorraine Hotel. And she also pointed out other sites and points of interest around around the city as we drove around. Now, one thing that I found very fascinating is the amount of street art and murals around the city, too. So the city has that artistic kind of vibe going on as well. Now, coming to Memphis, it has given, it will give you a chance to really check out the National Civil Rights Museum, which is located in the Lorraine Hotel. The museum takes you through the key episodes of the Civil Rights Movement, and there are two buildings there, so... You want to make sure that you plan enough time to take in both. And you can start with the film that highlights the events of the movement, then make your way through the museum, which has a lot of exhibits that covers actually several centuries. 
I would also advise you to save enough time for a bit of reflection when you go to visit the hotel room of Dr. King and the balcony outside of his room. Remembering that day very vividly, I stood for several minutes just kind of taking it all in because that was my first time visiting the site that I had heard so much about it because I do remember that day. Also, a trip over to the Ernest Witters uh, Museum where you can check out some of the photographs because he was the photographer that really you can say photograph decades of American history and in particular the civil rights history. He traveled with Dr. King. He was the photographer for Stack's records as well. So he also documented the trial for Emmett Till. And his photographs really captured six decades of what was going on in America. Our next stop was Stack's Music Museum. Think about Otis Redding, Booker T and the MGs, Isaac Hayes, and a whole lot more. They also call it Soulville, uh, USA, which is where all of the happenings in terms of music in the 60s and the 70s, it was taking place there. So here's a little bit of history about stacks and how it got started. So I want you to lean in a little closer to here because this is raw footage. So there's a lot of uh, background noise going on there. But what he's telling us is really some great history about stacks. Stacks are this neighborhood, which eventually becomes sold in the USA. When Stacks came here in 1960, this was a white working class neighborhood that was shifting to a black working class neighborhood. This theater, the Capitol Theater, which Stacks uh, took over in 1960, showed movies until about the early 1950s. And actually, the last event that we have record of that happened before Stacks came here was actually a country concert with the uh, singer Mel Tillis, if you've ever heard of Mel Tillis before. Um, and then Stacks came, Jim Stewart, Estelle Axton, they were up on the north side of Memphis, they were out in Brunswick, Tennessee, came down here in 1960, rented this theater for $175 a month. Estelle Axton had a son named Packy, who was friends with guys like Steve Cropper and Donald Duck Dunn, who eventually became half of Booker T and the MGs. Some other young men that would come in here and worked after school, worked or, uh, worked on the weekends, and converted the old movie theater into a world-class recording studio. These are folks that didn't have any idea really how to make records or really how to play on records, um, but kind of figured it out as they went. Um, one of the reasons why Jim Stewart and Estelle Axon wanted to come down here was Mr. Stewart had been bitten by the R&B bug. He had discovered Ray Charles, he discovered uh, these incredible vocal groups here in the Mid-South region, and decided that this was the music that he wanted to make, the music that he was passionate about. And he came down here in the Soulsville area, they entered into a talent-rich neighborhood where students this is a time when high school band programs were incredible here in this city. At Booker T. Washington High School, Manassas High School, Carver, Hamilton, just down the street. So the young people had these incredible opportunities to learn and perform in their schools and, of course, in their churches. So the talent was just everywhere in this neighborhood. David Porter, who was an incredible songwriter, worked across the street at the Big Star Grocery Store. James Alexander grew up two blocks away as the bass player for the Bar K's. Booker T. Jones was about four or five blocks that way. Uh, William Brown from the Mad Lads was a block and a half about that way. Wow. So all of these folks were in this community and Stax had this open door policy which sounds so cheesy and so trite, but literally the front door was always open in Stax Records and young people could come in and their first point of contact was the record store that Estelle Axton ran and that's where 
she learned and her brother learned and the stacks record staff learned what these young people in this in this neighborhood were listening to if they played a record if 10 kids came in and bought a copy of a record that they heard on WDAA, she's going to take that record back to her brother and say, hey man, you should make this. <laughs> or they cut something in the back, they get a test pressing of or an acetate of, she's, she's going to grab it, bring it out front, play it on the record player up here when there's kids in, kids in the store and kids outside. If they respond to it, if they dance, if they ask what it is, she's going to take it back and be like, hey, you got something here. So production and consumption under one roof, informing each other. It's this really incredible thing. Yeah. But again, the talent in this neighborhood was undeniable, but you have young black teenagers from South Memphis and then young white teenagers from not too far away coming together and able to work together and create some of the most important music in American history. So I'll stop here, but when I come back, I'm going to go over the food part because... There's another thing when you think about Memphis that you also think about, and that's barbecue. And after all, this was a foodie trip. So I ate and ate and then ate a little bit more. <laughs> I took all of that in. But here's a little bit of uh, sort of something interesting. Now, Memphis is known for barbecue, and I tried to check out a couple of places, and barbecue was like out at a lot of the places. So you know people were taking advantage of uh, Black Restaurant Week while I was there. So I'll stop here, I'll take a break. But when I come back, you're on Travel with Anita and Frizz. I'm going to talk about that food. You're on Travel with Anita and Frizz. out the local specialties when you're traveling. Welcome back to Travel with Anita and Friends. In cities like Memphis, there's no shortage of good food. I can guarantee you that. Because I was recently there on a tour that was all about trying out the restaurants. Now, starting with barbecue, you've all heard that it's the place to have some of the best barbecue that there is. And there are many spots around the city where you can try some of this Southern delight. But I was ready to venture out and try some of the other specialties of the city. Now, my culinary journey around Memphis started with small, delicious bites and cocktails at a place called the Supper Club on Second. And it's true to its name because the intimate setting gives you that kind of nostalgic feeling, especially when you look around the place and you see old photos of actors and actresses around the walls and musicians, and you get that feel of a 20 Supper Club where you feel like, well, did I dress up properly enough for, for coming here. And uh, the chef there, Chef Leatherwood, prepared a sampling of the menu that you can have there. So we had small bites of seafood, beef, a lot of really tasty bites, even some vegetarian things too. So you will definitely see that I will be returning on my next trip to Memphis back to the Supper Club on 2nd. And we also had lunch at a place called Asenia's. And you may have heard of her because she's been on both Food Network and the Travel Channel. We stopped by for, uh, for lunch, but you could also stop by for breakfast, lunch or brunch, too, on Saturdays. I, of course, had the fried chicken. If you know me, you know that that's one of my favorites. And I'm a Southern girl, so I, you know, I get a pass on that one. Now, everything is homemade, including the desserts. 
And here's a special treat. You have to try what she calls her ghetto aid. Yep, you heard me right. She calls it ghetto aid. And if you're like me, you grew up on Kool-Aid, so it's the same thing, except she adds her own little twist to it. <laughs> so stop by. It's a very easy walk from the downtown hotels. And we had breakfast at a place called By the Brewery, and that was on our second morning. And I'll tell you guys, the biscuits, okay, let me just say that they are delicious. And especially if you get some of their bacon to go along with it, that's all you need. And the menu really does have something that you'll definitely say yes to. As a matter of fact, you're not going to go away hungry because you might say yes to several things that are on the menu there. So it's a great place for you to stop and fill up before starting your tours around the city. Now for dinner on our last night there, we ate at a place called the Mahogany Memphis, which is a great way to really top off your visit around the city. Here's an upscale setting for you to enjoy all of your southern favorites, from seafood to fish dishes to, of course, fried chicken. And, okay, you can guess what I had. Yes, I did have the fried chicken. And the dishes have sort of a Creole spin to them, so you're sure to want to pair them with a nice glass of wine or, like in my case, with a glass of champagne. So you can come for happy hour from 4 to 6, enjoy a little jazz music and Remember now, you're in Memphis, so you do want to go to a place where you can have some jazz music, and you can definitely have it there. And after drinks, you're best to just kind of sit back and just kind of relax at a place called Inkwell. And that is a new cocktail bar that's in the Edge District. And if you're coming just for cocktails, that's good. But you can also come for cocktails and bites there. They have a very delicious selection of classic cocktails and also wine, small plate items like flatbreads, grilled cheese, and a whole lot of things like that. It's a perfect gathering spot if you're going on a date or if you're coming with a group of friends because it is kind of an intimate atmosphere there that makes it a great spot for connecting with your friends or connecting with that special person. Now, I also met a local brewer who is creating some very artistic beers in Memphis. And yes, beer can be artistic. And his company is called the Bill Street Brewing. So that should tell you a little bit about that it's going to be special because it's right there on Bill Street. Uh, has that name, and his name is Kelvin Colham, and he has always been a foodie. I asked him how he got started. He said, well, I've always been a foodie, and that love for food also encouraged him to start his own brewery, bringing in art to match it with beer, with some very creative flavors and really cool designs on the cans, too. So the packaging of the beer actually has an artistic flair to it as well. So I took a moment to have a conversation with him, so here's a conversation I had with Kevin while I stopped and had a taste of all of his beers. So what inspired you to start making beer? Um, being a foodie and a seeker of flavors kind of started this beer culinary journey many moons ago. And I started home brewing and once I caught the beer bug of home brewing, um, I just hadn't stopped since. And you say, you know, you caught the bug. So what age was this? I mean, you were were legal, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I'm seasoned for sure. So, yeah, it was definitely, I was definitely legal. Okay. And then you say, you know, you have this passion for flavors. And you do have so many different flavors. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about that. So tell us a little bit about some of the flavors that you've created and really the story behind them. Because they do have stories behind them. Absolutely. So, um, let's see, one of We've done a peanut butter banana porter celebrating Elvis, which that was his favorite, one of his favorite foods, a peanut butter banana sandwich. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did King's Ransom, which is peanut butter banana porter. 
Um, we've done a peach lemonade ale. With this is my favorite. Favorite. This is my favorite. With chamomile and lavender. Um, we've done a rosé ale um, with hibiscus, cranberry, strawberry. Yeah. Um, let's see what else have we done. Oh, we've done a vanilla mocha brown ale with coffee, vanilla beans, and a few cinnamon sticks. Um, we've done a toasted coconut imperial stout. Um, I think those are, everything else is just hop forward beers or hop, hop flavored beers. Mm -hmm. But now you know that your packaging is so unique and so artistic. So there must be a story behind that as well. I'm glad you noticed. Yes, ma'am. So um, our, our tagline is one of our taglines is liquid art. So we collaborate with artists and local artists to create labels. So we utilize artists to um, help create, tell a story um, through the label design. So I'm glad you enjoyed those. They're, they're beautiful. And uh, for folks who want to check it out, you can certainly go to my website, Travel with Anita. You'll see a picture there, as well as on Facebook, Travel with Anita. But now, uh, you said you started around 2020 when a lot of us were trying to figure out what on earth was going on in the world. So kind of how, I mean, how did that kind of come about? So we got beer on the shelf March of 2020, but this project has been going on for years prior. Um, so yes, um, we happened to launch to the world officially in March of 2020, but it's been a lot of research and um, work way prior to March of 2020 for sure. So you were ready. Yeah, we didn't. Well, we didn't know the world was gonna shut down, but we're 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 still here. So <laughs> yeah, and you you stepped in at a time when we needed something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it was perfect. It was kind of was perfect time. So it was perfect time, and um, we had a captive audience. Um, mm -hmm. so yeah, the launch went. I say went well. We didn't have a lot of beer and kegs, mm -hmm. um, but what we did have in kegs went through you know growler fields and things of that nature. So mm -hmm. um, after the initial runs, we went straight to off-premise packaging, which is which are cans, mm -hmm. which shows better um, that the artwork that we um, put on the label. So it's been okay. Yeah, yeah. But so what's next for you? <clears throat> uh, we're working on a brick and mortar. It should be here fourth quarter this year or first quarter next year. Um, and we're working on distro into other states. Yeah, you need to come to Georgia. We're, we're waiting in Georgia. I'm trying to get there. Yes, that's one of our target markets for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, congratulations to you. I know you've won some awards. We were rated one of the 38 hottest IPAs by Thrillist, Thrillist Magazine last year um, for Space Age Sipping. And also won 10, placed fifth in 10 best on USA Today's 10 best with Space Age Sipping label design. Mm. Oh, uh, yes, yeah, Space Age Sipping for sure. Well, congratulations again, and thank you so much for taking a little bit of time and, and also sharing uh, all of your beers with us and allowing us to have a chance to taste them all. Uh, you're more than welcome. So check out his website, Bill Street Brewing, and that's B-E-A-L-E-S-T Brewing.com. So when you come to Memphis, you know exactly which ones you want to try out and where you can find them. And to plan a trip to Memphis, visit the website where you'll find more about the places I mentioned, also places to stay, and I recommend that you stay at the caption by Hyatt on Bill Street, which is where I stay. But check out their website, memphistravel.com. That's pretty easy, right? And you can start planning your own visit to Memphis, where you'll have music, history, food, fun. You have all of those things. It's all there. <laughs> okay, I'll stop here. But when I come back in a few minutes, you on Travel with Anita and Friends, I'm taking you to a new destination.
heard the saying, there's gold in them hills. Well, I've got a spot where you'll say, there's fun in them hills. Welcome back to Travel with Anita and Friends. And that place is Beach Mountains, North Carolina. It's always been a favorite area for all of us in this area. Because you can go up for skiing in the winter or summer fun with mountain biking. Now, I had a chance to speak with Armando Garcia, who is the Marketing and Tourism Director of Beach Mountain. I asked him to tell me about something that's going on there now called the Quilt Trail. I wanted to know how it got started and how can we go up and see that and follow the trail and see art all around the area. Here's my conversation with Armando. Barn Quilt Trail offers a combination of unique tiles in a self-guided tour throughout Appalachian Mountains and explore the Appalachian culture as well as the heritage of arts and crafts. Uh, it showcases the craft of quilting, which is very important to the region. It is very important to the region. And, you know, my grandmother was a quilter and I was always so fascinated with all of the patterns and just how, you know, you can combine different patches of cloth. And, you know, for them, it was not just only art, but it was also a way to stay warm during the winter. So quilts really do have a unique place in our history. Absolutely. And uh, it's uh, l like you mentioned, it it had a functionality, but it also had an incredible artistic value. And many of those patterns in quilting represented uh, family stories, in some cases, even something that could be considered a family crest. Each quilter uh, came up with very beautiful, incredible patterns. And then that slowly translated into folks painting that on woods and um, hanging those patterns and those quilt squares that uh, represented the history sometimes of the land, sometimes it was the history of a building or the history of a family. It was a very uh, unique artistic expression of who they were. You know, that's so, that's so true. And I remember my grandmother also, uh, she and her sisters would switch out uh, scraps of fabric that they had left over from things that they would have made. Like maybe they made a dress or an apron or a blouse or something like that. And there was a little bit of cloth left over and that's what would be used in making the quilt. So very, very fascinating. But now we, we're, you're calling them barn quilts. So what exactly are barn quilts? But what happened is that slowly, like I mentioned, um, those patterns that uh, the crafters made for, for their blankets and such um, were so unique and so beautiful that folks started painting them sometimes on wood, sometimes on metals, and they would hang them in a, traditionally in their barns. And little by little, it was uh, like a decorative item and a representation of who they are in sometimes even a family crest. And little by little, those tiles were uh, a way of recognizing the family and the owners of, of the homes. And they started kind of appearing not just in barns, but in actual public buildings. They started appearing in um, in libraries, in schools, and it was kind of a, an outdoor artwork representation of Appalachian culture, if you will. So they were kind of called barn quilt trails because originally they were painted on wood and hung on the barns in people's properties. 
Yeah, and I know before we started, you were sharing with me how, you know, your area in North Carolina there, the Western North Carolina, you guys have a really large collection of them, really, compared to the rest of the country. We do. We have one of the largest collections in North Carolina, um, as opposed to uh, the rest of the country, even though the barn quills are very prominent throughout the southeast, and specifically from Kentucky through Tennessee, Virginia, uh, North Carolina, of course, uh, Georgia. They, they've been very popular, but North Carolina happens to have one of the largest collections. I don't really have a uh, a comparison figure, but I do know that we uh, have that distinct honor. In uh, in this particular area of the high country was the Avery County Arts Council that developed the original trail. And what they uh, had done is they went around and gathered information on, on the different quilt tiles that existed, on the artwork, who the creator was, the meaning behind them. The Arts Council then disbanded in 2012, and the information was kind of lost, and all the brochures and the websites that there was about um, the trails in the area, the, the tiles in the area was lost, but thanks to a grant by the uh, Blue Ridge National Heritage Area, the trail was recreated in the last two, three years, and we kind of went out there and found tiles and places where they were showcased and wrote down those addresses and were able to recreate and reestablish the trail uh, for people to drive around and view and enjoy. There's That is the history, uh, in, in a nutshell, of the Avery County Quilt Trail. There's other quilt trails in the area. I know that Hayward County County, for example, is trying to start the same project, and I know that Watauga County also has uh, many tiles that they are kind of banding together to uh, kind of put together a Western North Carolina larger quilt trail. Can we go and see this? This because it's really a cultural gem. It really is and a cultural gem, as you mentioned. And I would say the best place to, to start would be here on Beach Mountain. Uh, our community has 29 uh, quilt squares, if you will, which is the largest congregation of them throughout Avery County. Then uh, from there, you uh, listeners can branch out and visit other communities in every county, such as uh, the Banner Elk community and uh, the Linville community. They, too, have some other squares in total in the, like I would say, in a 15-mile radius, there is over um, 50 uh, quill tiles to see. And like I said, our community has uh, 29 of those 50. And on the other side of the mountain, we are very close to the Tennessee border and more tiles can be found there. And beyond just the beauty of the tiles, which of course is is great to to experience and to see you really get a beautiful drive in the bucolic appalachian area and just even beyond the tiles the vistas and the the drive itself is quite beautiful a good time if we really want to explore take our time drive and and see the, the quilt trail 
I think that spring and summer are the great time are great times to visit the area. We are right off of the Blue Ridge Parkway, and uh, not only is the parkway beautiful in itself, but for example, during the fall, you get a lot of people visiting the area to see the leaves, which is spectacular as well. But you will find it to be a little busier. And during the winter, there's so many winter sports uh, opportunities up here with uh, resorts and uh, skiing and snowboarding that that also represents kind of a heavier traffic. But if you guys really want to enjoy a relaxing trip through the countryside and really uh, a quiet uh, visit of these quilt trails during the summer and spring, the area is beautiful. Flowers are blooming. Then the greenery of the trees, it's the scenery is just very bright and colorful. So I would recommend that time. And it's also not as busy in terms of traffic and, and general visitors. But well, where can we go to find more information about the things that you've talked about with the quilt trail, as well as some of the things for lodging and and uh, other activities, outdoor activities? Where can we go? Visit our website, that's beachmtn.com. And that website is very comprehensive and it includes everything we've talked about from all those great outdoor activities to lodging and dining options on the mountain to the uh, special section dedicated specifically to the Barn Quill Trail. Are you ready? I am. Let's go. We can start with checking out their website, beachmountain.com. That's B-E-E-C-H-M-T-N dot com. It includes all the information about the places he spoke about, but also things like dining and also places to stay. It's all there. I'll be back in a moment here on Travel with Anita and Friends. The cool breeze in your hair and a song in your heart? Does that describe what you're looking for in a vacation? Welcome back to Travel with Anita and Friends. And if you answered yes, I've got the destination for you. North Carolina's Brunswick Islands. It's a collection of coastal communities with five barrier islands and 45 miles of wide open, beautiful beaches, each with their own distinct characteristics. And they're located between Wilmington and Myrtle Beach. You can go and check them out and find out which one is your perfect spot. Now, what I like about this area, I have to tell you all, is that the temperature, the warm weather is there throughout the year. So you can have unforgettable experiences with the spectacular scenery throughout the year. So there's no waiting until the summer to go and check out these beaches. There are six different beaches in the Brunswick Islands, and therefore you have a lot to choose from. They're all pristine and uncrowded, and each with its own allure and personality. So like I just said, there's something for everyone. And in terms of places to stay, there also is a wide variety of large beachfront rental homes that can accommodate everyone in your group. Now, the time that I was there, we stayed in a house that really could probably accommodate about 12 people, 12 to 14 people. So think about a family reunion or just a summer vacation spot or even holiday getaways would be perfect there, too. Now, some of the places are located in spots that allow you to see just sweeping scenery across the water and across the beaches, surrounded by landscape that really is perfect for watching the sunrise or watching the sunset. 
Now, speaking of sunsets, my favorite beach is Sunset Beach. Not only is it peaceful and beautiful, but it has its own celebrity performing artist in the form of the renowned Sunset Sand artist, Hunter Gibbies, also known as the Sunset Beach Maze Man, because he builds all of those amazing structures right there in the sand. Now, as a visitor, you can stop by and check it all out as you're going by. He's created more than 400 beach mazes in over 15 years since he first started. So I think he knows what he's doing there. (laughs) But on this uh, secluded stretch of beach, one mile from the nearest public area, nestled between the sand dunes on Bird Island, is where you'll find the Kindred Spirit mailbox, which is my favorite thing to do. I can't go to that area and not go see the mailbox. Travelers come from all around the world to come and leave their memories, or reflections, wishes, sorrows, prayers, dreams, everything in the notebooks that you'll find in the mailbox. So you can walk, you can stroll, you can bike along the beach, and then find yourself at the Kindred mailbox. And I can tell you that that beach, that area, that mailbox, has been an inspiration to several of the Nicholas Sparks novels, including the one, Every Breath. Now, across each of the five islands, you will find unique culinary and regional cuisine that you can try out. Definitely want to try out the oysters. <laughs> they have an oyster festival every year. so You definitely want to check that out. I know I do. But now, one of my favorite things to do is to visit the Old Bridge Museum, where you can learn a lot more about the area that was not so long ago, really. It's very fascinating to have a chance to sit and talk with Anne, who you'll find there at the museum, and she tells us all about the old bridge and how it came to be. Here's my clip where I chat, chatted with Anne. The, the way that the Old Bridge Preservation Society got started is that we became aware that no one was going to save the old bridge. Mm. And it was the icon of Sunset Beach. Everyone knew about Sunset Beach via that bridge. So we began an effort, three of us began an effort to save the bridge and After a number of trials and tribulations, which I won't go into here, we were able to save the bridge. Mm -hmm. We bought it from the construction company building the new bridge, and we paid a dollar. We're not sure who got the best end of that deal, but uh, we, we got it. And then they used their cranes and moved it over to this location, which is not very far from where it was uh, originally. So, so originally, was, was it exactly where the, where the new bridge is now located? Um, no, not exactly. If, if you were to um, continue down Sunset Boulevard past the new bridge, mm-hmm. you would get to a boat ramp down there, and that's the site of the bridge. That's mm-hmm. where the bridge went across the intracoastal. Mm-hmm. Now our new bridge, in order to make it uh, long enough and to make it high enough and not have too steep a climb, it, it starts much further right back than the original mm-hmm. bridge did. Now, I would love for you to describe for my listeners what the old bridge looked like. It looked as though maybe it was just only one lane. It was only one lane. And in the early years, it didn't even have a traffic light. So you had to just start across the bridge and hope nobody started coming the other way toward you. (laughs) Sometime in the 70s, uh, a traffic light was installed that made life a little more predictable. And if you were riding your bicycle across the bridge, there was a sign there, and it says, Bicycles, follow last car in line. So that meant that when the bridge uh, traffic light turned red for the traffic that was going across, then 
you were on your bike and pedaling like crazy after the last car <laughs> so that you could get across with the traffic. With the traffic. And it was, uh, the, the bridge uh, had metal ramps and then it has a, a big wooden timbers in the center. And when you got to those timbers, your teeth would chatter because they were so bumpety going across the bridge. In fact, the um, the bridge made noises with your car going across too, and it would mm-hmm. kind of go kathump, kathump, kathump. Mm-hmm. When we were trying to save the bridge, we had some um, reporters who came to do stories with us, and we would stand right down by the bridge, and they could listen to it because it was still in the water then. And I'd say, "You hear that kathump, kathump? That is the heartbeat of Sunset Beach." Oh, and so that kind of became one of our taglines, mm-hmm. and uh, and it was, and and this bridge was the heart of Sunset Beach. Mm-hmm. Uh, the town would have never grown and developed. In without the way that it did it, without yeah. it, because our town is both the island and the mainland, mm-hmm. but you know we're fairly small. <laughs> so, how long would it take for the bridge to be opened for the boats to come through? The the Coast Guard required the bridge to open every hour at the top of the hour mm-hmm. for boat traffic, and a complete cycle would depend on how many boats were lined up waiting to go through. Mm. They would call on their radio and they, excuse me, would check the. Um, uh, with the bridge tender to see when it was going to mm-hmm. open. Uh, so if there were just a few boats, it would take about 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. So if you were waiting, you had to just roll your windows down and turn the engine off and watch the pretty boats go through. Uh-huh. Uh, interesting stories about that, because sometimes in the summer, there would be a lot of people coming, and you would if, if there were also a lot of boaters. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you would get stuck waiting, or unfortunately, if one of the cables for the bridge broke, then you'd end up waiting probably an hour and a half or two hours. So the stories go, as people would get there and realize the bridge was closed, they'd be like, oh my goodness, I just went to the grocery, I have ice cream in the car. <laughs> so the, they would go to the restaurant right next to the bridge, which was then called Twin Lakes, and Ronnie and Clarice Holden own it, and they would put it in the walk-in freezer <laughs> so that your ice cream wouldn't melt. Yeah, it was great. So how was the bridge, what was the mechanism for opening and closing the bridge? Well, the, the bridge had a center section that was floating on eight large metal barges. Mm-hmm. And that was the pontoon swing part of the bridge because it was a pontoon swing bridge. So not a draw bridge. It didn't go up. It just opened out to the side. Uh, and that left the gap for the boats to go through. Uh, in the engine room, which is in the lower part of the tender house, there was a large diesel engine and then a smaller um, auxiliary engine in case the large one failed. That diesel engine operated a hydraulic uh, pump mm-hmm. that was used to uh, pull uh, cables in on winches. So there were winches that pulled the bridge open, closed, and also that operated counterweights, mm-hmm. which are large um, concrete blocks they weigh about nine thousand pounds a piece there was one on each side on on both ends so there were four all together mm-hmm. and those would hold the metal ramps up so that the bridge could swing because the metal ramps laid down on the roadway and when the counterweights would pull them up <laughs> then the bridge could swing open could swing open yeah mm-hmm. so cars would have to stop with enough space and room for all of those things to take place i guess as well there was a um a gate arm that would go down okay. and the traffic light. Mm-hmm. So on both sides, they would just be backed up on the road, sometimes backed up quite a good bit. Uh, 
but it was, you know, it was always uh, one of our local stores has these little signs and it has a picture of the old bridge and it says, it was always worth the wait. <laughs> and we certainly felt that way. Talk about a story that takes you back in time. I love the old bridge story. Now it's your turn to visit the area and find your favorite spot among all the beaches down the Brunswick Islands. No matter what you choose, make sure you go to that Kindred Spirit mailbox. The Kindred Mailbox has your name on it. Visit their website, ncbrunswick.com, for more information on places to stay, eat, and to have all of that fun. Thanks for joining me today. I'll be back in two weeks with another great destination. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Travel with Anita. For more, log on to her website, travelwithanita with two ends.com, and listen to her award-winning podcast, Quarter Miles Travel, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Anita will be back in two weeks with another exciting adventure for you and your travel buddies. So keep those passports updated and remember to always travel safe and travel smart. Right, Jack? Uh, uh, uh.